Uh, thank you guys for coming and remind you that this is the fourth week. I had planned, my original plan, fourth week, we were going to be looking at past Joseph and in Egypt somewhere, but we're not there yet because there was some cool stuff to look at. And there's still some cool stuff, but we're going to get through Abraham tonight. As always, ask questions if you have questions. If you missed any of the other sessions and you want the handouts from those sessions, they do have the maps on the back and stuff in the church office by the mailboxes. There's a folder on top, and you'll see them, first, second, third session. You can grab one. If you go and listen to it online, it'll follow the outlines that we have. Any questions? If you have a Bible, you'll probably need it tonight. So if you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody around you and turn to Genesis 15. This is where we ended last week. If you were with us last week, we ended with Abram rescuing Lot and a crazy priest that no one had ever heard of from Salem, which is Jerusalem, showed up. His name is Melchizedek, and he is mentioned by David in the Psalms. He's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7 as a type in indicating Jesus. He is, he's the first priest king we see, really the only priest king we see until David comes along and claims to be a priest and a king, and then Jesus comes along as a priest and king. So we saw him at the end of chapter 14, and then in 15... We're going to see God reintroduce the covenant that he made with Abram when he told Abram to leave back in chapter 5. You remember Abram's over here in Ur. God tells him to leave and go to Canaan land, this land over here. And we've traced that all the way from Adam all the way now to Abram. And so he ends up going to Haran. Leaves, most of his family stays in this area. And he ends up south. And then we followed him all the way to Egypt and back. And he is in the Hebron area and he stays the rest of his life right around this area. Zoar, now you see it says possible location of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know. I told you back when we were looking at the map. We don't know. There are two or three cities that have been excavated that they think are Sodom and Gomorrah in this area because around 2000 B.C. they were destroyed by fire. All the cities that they found in this area, which fits into the, the valley there and the, where it's all destroyed. And so they're all in this area, and they're going to stay in this area. And I wanted to see the map because I wanted you to be able to, to see when we come to some of these questions later. And so Abram has followed God. He doesn't know much about God. He, had a, he was a polytheistic follower, and all of a sudden this God shows up and says, I'm not just your personal God. I want to make a covenant with you. I want to bless you. And that was crazy in that time, something that was unheard of. There, gods didn't come to bless you. You blessed the gods. You did everything for the gods. So it was unheard of. And so Abram is sitting and he's following and he's being obedient. And then God shows up in chapter 15 and reconfirms what the covenant is that he wants to make with Abram. So I'm going to read some of it. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And we don't know that, that word vision there is we don't know if he's dreaming. We don't know if this was a physical manifestation. It's In the Hebrew, it's really sketchy so i mean it could be a dream it could have been a vision it could have been awake we don't know but we just know the lord comes and speaks to him he says do not be afraid abram for i am your shield your very great reward but abram said oh sovereign lord what can you give me since i remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is eleazar of damascus that was a nephew and abram said you have given me no children so a servant in my household will be my heir he in normal in their household firstborn if you didn't have them then your servants oldest servants, firstborn, was able to inherit. Because in, in these days, your household was family. Even slaves, they come back from Egypt and they bring... You remember Abram didn't tell the truth and his wife ended up being with Pharaoh. Found out that it was his wife instead of his sister is what Pharaoh saw. So Pharaoh gave them all kind of blessings. And so they, they left here with slaves and people and workers. 
And so there's a lot of Egyptians in Abram's caravan, but they, they're all considered part of his family. And so part of the inheritance, if you didn't have boys, it fell to the firstborn male child of your oldest servant or your longest servant. And so servants could inherit. So that's what Abram's saying here. And then the word of the Lord came to him and says, This man will not be your heir, but a son is coming from your own body, and he will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall be your offspring. And Abram believed the Lord, and it credited to him as righteousness. And that, that word believed is faith. You know, we're going to see it probably more so today in looking at the covenant than anything else. There's such a misunderstanding, and, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but there's such a misunderstanding of how people in the Old Testament are saved. You need to understand that Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, they're in heaven. They're, they're saved, but they weren't saved by the law. Okay, the, the Old Covenant was the beginning, and the law is introduced to Moses after the Ten Commandments. That's all that the book of Leviticus is. And so people think, well, they obeyed the law, and so the law is what saved them. No, the law never saves anybody. Following the rules never saved anybody. They were saved by their faith in the one who gave the law. And you're going to see that several times when he's talking to Abram, and he's trying, or even becomes Abraham, and trying to reestablish this covenant. And it's very important. Because the covenant that is established here is identical to the covenant that Jesus Christ establishes with His church. I told you Sunday when I talked about the Bible, the actual word for testament in the Greek is tra- translated diakte, which is a covenant. And so it's Old Covenant. In the Greek Bible translation, it's Old Covenant and New Covenant because that was the Old Testament and the New Testament. They, they, they overlap. And so when you talk about the Old Covenant, it follows very similar to the covenant that Jesus is going to make, and it's not by accident. So he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees and give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, or Abram, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these things to him, and he cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. And the birds, however, he did not cut in half. And the birds of the prey came down in the carcasses, but Abram drove them off. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. That's, they were in Egypt for 400 years. You know, now Moses is writing this afterwards. So you know Moses is writing this, and so it's probably a little more accurate because of the story. But we, that doesn't discount what God said to Abram in this prophecy. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in an old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Talking about taking over the promised land. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenzites, the Cadmorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And all of those are descendants of the different people that came out of Noah's three sons that were inhabiting this area of the promised land. And then he reestablishes, he, he comes back in chapter 17 and brings another part of the covenant by bringing circumcision into the covenant. Now, just from what I read there, you need to understand, a covenant is a promise. In these days of Abram, there is no archaeological discovery of any covenant of this type, except it's very similar to a land deal. When they would make land grants, when a king would make a land grant to people in his kingdom, he would cut an animal in half, And they would meet in the middle, walking in between the blood, 
and agreed that this land was being traded places. And so the idea of cutting a covenant comes from that picture of the blood being shed and then walking between and agreeing to the covenant. But that's not what happens here. Who initiates this covenant? God. What was Abraham's condition to, for part of the covenant? What did, what, did he, what did he ask of Abram to be a part of this covenant? Really didn't ask him anything, did he? He's already there. And really, it's not a bilateral covenant at all. In, in a bilateral covenant, it, Abram's in this fog and this lamp and this censer of smoke appears. Now, you do see that in some temple worship at that time. There's no significance. Some people want to add significance to it. It's just the presence of God. It's just a picture saying the presence of God. And the presence of God moves in between all of these cut animals. Abram never goes and greets God in, in the middle. It was all God, none Abram. Abram didn't take part in the covenant except to receive. And he received the blessings. What's that? Just like the, Just like the new covenant. And that's why it's important for us to understand. A lot of people want to make the covenant... The promises that go along with the covenant, he says, I will bless your people and I will bless the nations. Your children will be many, as many as the stars, and I will bless them. A lot of people want to add obedience as a part of that blessing because he does tell him later on to to obey, to follow me. And so reading back into the original covenant, they want to say, look, here's some things you have to do to actually receive that covenant. But the only problem with that is we don't see that in 15 and 17. When God originally established a covenant, it was God saying, I want to bless you. I'm going to do this. And he didn't ask for anything from Abram. Now, he told him, I'm going to bless him. And part of that blessing was not conditional on Abram's obedience. It was a part of his obedience. As Abram was obedient, God blessed him more. And God blessed him more. But he didn't bless him on condition of being obedient. And it's very important for us to recognize that. Because what significance does that have to us in our salvation. God initiates it. You might think you went looking for God. God initiates it. And that, that's the difference between, we're talking about Baptist on Sunday, and I'm explaining you know, the, the principles that Baptists stand on. One of the things that since the Reformation, people have argued and argued, and Baptists aren't settled. It's one of those things that even in Baptist churches, we still disagree. It's the idea of what they call Reformed theology today, which would be Calvinism. And some Baptists have gravitated between Calvinism and Arminianism because Both of those have some flaws, and we find ourselves somewhere in the middle. But most Baptists agree that all salvation starts with God. God initiates. God's the one who comes to you and reveals himself to you. You don't go searching for God. God reveals, man responds, God seals it. And so if if all the work is done up here, that means once the work is done, it's sealed. Does God ever make a condition that... If you don't obey me, then I'm going to take away the covenant. Matter of fact, we're going to look in just a minute. Abram is disobedient right after this. Because he says, my wife's old. She can't have children. And so I'm going to sleep with one of my servants that we brought back from Egypt. And I'm going to have a child through her. And he has a child named Ishmael through her. And, And guess what? God comes and says, that's not what I was talking about. But because he is your line, and I made a deal that your line was going to be blessed and plentiful, I'm going to still bless him. Even though that's not the way I said to do it, even though that's not the way, I'm still going to bless him because I made a deal with you. Probably the the biggest scripture is in Leviticus. You read Leviticus, and especially Leviticus 26, 
It's all the law. Talking about what happens to disobedience. And, and then God says this to Moses. Yet in spite of this, this is Leviticus 26, 44. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am their Lord. So what's God saying? Even if they're disobedient. Even because, you know, we, we'll get there one day, but when the kingdom splits and you've got kings that are bad. Remember Jezebel that fought with Elijah? Well, she was the king's wife, the, the king of the southern kingdoms. And so he had a horrible wife. Did, it, did God remove the blessings in the covenant? He didn't. The only time the covenant stops is when Jesus Christ says, I've come to fulfill it. Didn't say I came to stamp it out or get rid of it. He said, I, I came to fulfill it. For I am the Lamb that fulfills the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He brings them together. But the Old Covenant is a type. Remember the word type I gave you a couple of weeks ago? It points to what is coming. And it's not an accident that God created this covenant with Abram. Now people, we, I asked you a couple of weeks ago, why Abram? Why not? I think I said Joe Bob last week or two weeks ago. Why not Joe Bob that was in the tent next to Abram? Why Abram? Because he's God. Why you? Why did God pursue you? I mean, it's, it, at some point we have to recognize He's God and His ways are beyond our ways. And we, and we have to be like Abram and say, I don't deserve this, but I'll receive it and be obedient to it. And so it, it's a pretty picture of the covenant. And then he brings the idea of shedding of blood comes in with circumcision. And, and, uh, in chapter 17, God comes back to him and says, listen, here's how circumcision was not a step of obedience to receive the covenant. They didn't do it. They did circumcision to recognize that they were a part of the nation of Israel. He was creating a nation, a people. Circumcision wasn't new. The Egyptians had been circumcising for a thousand years. Kings in Egypt had circumcised their sons as a sign of fertility when they turned 13. So it wasn't something that was new. It had already been introduced in this area. And they, you know, they'd spent time in Egypt, so they'd probably heard. But then God comes and says, here's what I want you to do. Every male has to be circumcised, not to make them a part of the covenant, but because they are a part of the covenant. And it was that sacrifice of blood that allowed them to be recognized as being part of the covenant. And a lot of people want to say baptism in the new covenant. That baptism is sort of like circumcision in that you don't do it to be saved. You do it because you're saved. And you do it as a recognition because the whole point of baptism, when I preached on a couple of weeks ago, I told you. The point is to announce, I am now a part of the church. I am now... a a part of this different nation. And so Abram's saying, by this circumcision, we become a part of a nation. So it's kind of cool the way God works that in. And I mentioned Hagar and Ishmael. God, you know, he automatically turned to Hagar, and Sarah was all for it until Hagar got pregnant. You can read some of that in chapter 16. And she has a son, and his name is Ishmael. God says some interesting things about Ishmael down in verses 11, 12, 13. The angel of the Lord came to her because she ran away. She ran back towards Egypt. She, they're over here in Hebron. She starts heading into the desert in Sinai, and the Lord finds her. And the Lord comes and says, where are you going? She says, well, Sarah's mean to me. And so he blesses Ishmael. He says, you are now a child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means God sees. God sees what you're going through. and Because it wasn't her fault. I mean, she was just a willing made and the Lord has heard your misery but your son will be like a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers and he's going to add 
when we see the last of Ishmael after Abraham dies, Moses adds it one more time about Ishmael, talks about Ishmael's descendants, and they end up settling this area right here in, in the north part of the Negev is where they settle, on, and it's a wilderness. It's called the Wilderness of Suth. If you had another map and had that on there, if you see it on there, but that's where they settle. And it says the tribes, he had 12 tribes, 12 sons that all had tribes and they all had extended families. And so it was this huge group of people. And, and it said they were hostile to every other tribe around them. They never got along with anyone that was around them. Well, we know today that the Arab people, the Arab race, trace their lineage back to Abraham and that all of them come from the line of Ishmael. And so that when you look at what happens in the Middle East between Abram's family and Ishmael's family, or, or Isaac's family and Ishmael's family, Abram's two sons, they, they hadn't got along for the last you know, 4,000 years. They, they've been fighting. It's because Abraham didn't obey. And you want to say, well, what's one little sin? What's one little sin visited on the generations and the generations and the generations that are to follow? What's one little step of disobedience? We may not ever experience it, but we don't know the path that that may lead our descendants on. And it's easy to listen and read here and think, it was no big deal. God blessed him anyway. They're still dealing with it. The Muslim race and all the Muslim religion trace their lineage back to Abram. So it's interesting that you have the three largest world religions that all trace their lineage Back to Abram, Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Abram was the linchpin where all of them sprung out. And the reason is because Abram wasn't was obedient. He didn't believe God that his old woman wife was going to have a kid. Now, there's something in here. and He renames him in 17. I didn't get to that when he did the covenant. He says, your name is no longer going to be Abram. Abram meant exalted father or the father is exalted. He says, now your name is going to be Abraham, which means the father of many. Names were a big deal. In, in the Old Testament times, even in the New Testament times. Names held meaning. By naming somebody, by renaming somebody, you are kind of changing their destiny. And you can see that with Abraham's name changed. The father is exalted is, is kind of saying, my earthly father, I'm paying homage. He was the oldest son, and so he was the homage to his dad. And so his name represented, I'm an, I exalt my father. And then God said, no, that's not going to be your name anymore. From now on, your name is going to be the father of nations. Whereas his old name looked back, his new name looked forward. And he wasn't going to experience that many nations, but that was part of the covenant. He said, Sarah's the same thing. Sarah went from being Sarah to Sarah with an A-H instead of an A-I, which turned her name into the mother of nations. And so Sarah becomes the mother of nations. Now, God, this isn't the only time God does this. Anybody remember any other times in the Bible when God changes somebody's name? What's, he change? What's Jacob's name mean? Do you remember? Anybody know what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. And so in the Hebrew, it is deceiver. Name. How'd you like that name? Hey, here comes the deceiver, you know? And so God changes his name from deceiver to Israel. And you know what Israel means? He wrestled with God. He struggles with God. He, after, after Jacob, remember Jacob ends up wrestling with God. And so God says, your name is now, broke his hip, said your name is now different. Now, your name is one who wrestles with God, or one who. And so the name of Israel, the nation of Israel's name, gets its roots from that name change. You know, if Jacob wouldn't wrestle with God, I don't know if Israel would have been called deceiver. Probably wouldn't be as big a fan today of Israel if their name meant deceiver instead of wrestling with God. But God decided to change it. What about anybody else's name? Saul, Saul Paul, because it was a new new birth. He changed Saul from the one who was persecuting 
to the one who walked with God. And so all of a sudden, he, he changes their identity. And that's what names do. And matter of fact, you know, our surnames all came from our identity. Uh, your last name, uh, all last names arrived from our identities, who we were. Somewhere along the way, you had somebody in your family that had a career or job that was added at the end of their name, you know, that described who they were. Your name's Butler. Somewhere down the way back there, you had a butler. And they said, John the butler. And so all of a sudden, instead of saying, John the butler, come here, they said, John Butler, come here. And so all of a sudden, that's who you became. But all, everybody's surname, that's how we got our surnames. That's why you don't have last names in history until you start seeing the Middle Ages come along. Names mean something. So this is significant. Now I want to point out something to you. Go to chapter 16 if you have your Bible. And we're going to look at what I just read to you in verse 7. She's run away. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where are you going? He begins to talk to her. And so then he comes down, verse 14, verse 11, The angel of the Lord said to her, Now go down and look at verse 13. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, For I have now seen the one who sees me. The angel of the Lord, God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this question back and forth of being called Lord and being called angel of the Lord. Interspersed. See, she's talking about the same guy. This angel of the Lord, angel means messenger. It also means the one who is sent. This one who is sent, all of a sudden she calls him God. She changes from angel of the Lord. She says she changes the name to El. And the problem with our Bibles is there's a hundred names of God used in the Old Testament. And we just have them either translated Almighty God, God, or Jehovah. Uh, the, the official name of God that the Hebrews adapted is Yahweh, which is, we would say, Almighty God. Here, when it's used as, as Lord, and then at the first of 17, where it says, I am, he says, I am God Almighty in verse 2 of chapter 17, that's El Shaddai, which means the God of the mountain. El, remember, was the God's, that's just a generic name for God. And Shaddai means Almighty, the God of the, all that you can see, all you can purvey. And so we see these names being interspersed all throughout the Old Testament. But many times it says angel of the Lord, and then it calls that angel God. And so you begin to ask yourself, now, who is this angel? Because any other times that we see angels in New Testament time, they're given a name. Anytime one angel appears, he's called a name. And in the Old Testament, he's called a name, but he's usually called the angel of the Lord, and then somewhere within that it translates into God. It goes back and forth, back and forth. And you can see that. Genesis 48, and I've given you all the different references, but they're interesting to read and to see, and so I'll just look at a couple of them. Genesis 48, when Joseph's sons are being blessed, you know, Joseph's sons become two of the tribes of Israel, Jacob's grandsons, and he blesses them. He brings Manasseh and Ephraim in, and then in verse 15, he says, then, then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life of this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. So he uses the same surname, angel, to describe God who blessed his fathers, blessed those that came before him. Moses in the burning bush does the same thing. Uh, he uses God. The angel of the Lord came to him, and then when it appeared to the burning bush, all of a sudden it was God. It was Yahweh. And then in Exodus 23 is the strangest one we have. Uh, and I skipped the one of, of when he uses it in Genesis 31. 
But in Exodus 23, they're going, they're going out, out of Egypt, into the, into the Sinai, and God says, I'm going to send an angel that is going to lead you. And you remember the fire by night? I'm going to send an angel that's going to lead you. He's going to protect you. God says, you obey him and respect him. He said, he has my name. You can go read that in, in verse 21 of Exodus 23. He says, he has my name. Now, who in the world would God give his name to? Because the Bible says, later on, Isaiah says, God doesn't share his glory with anybody. God doesn't give his name to anybody. And this angel, all throughout the Old Testament, he has divine authority and divine power. In Genesis 16.10, where I read, he gives life. In Genesis 16, in Exodus, he, he says he is all-knowing. He's omniscient, the word uses. He forgives sins in Exodus 23. He forgives the sins of the people. The angel of the Lord does that. He performs miracles. The angel of the Lord, the same angel of the Lord, is the one who brought the plagues in Egypt. He's the one who called the death over Egypt. He's the same one who was at the burning bush. It says, angel of the Lord. He commands and receives worship. He tells Moses in Exodus 3, worship me. He tells Joshua, worship me. The angel said that. And we know that in the book of Revelation, John, when he's up in heaven and sees all these angels, he begins to worship them. The Lord from the throne says, we don't worship angels. You only worship me. And so there is a call not to worship angels. So why would this angel tell them to worship him? So who is this angel? Well, I gave it on your sheet. I said some insight from two New Testament verses. In John 10.30, what does Jesus say? I and the Father are one. And in John 8.18 he says, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now, what does angel mean? The one who was sent. I believe, most Bible scholars believe, that the angel of the Lord that's listed here all throughout the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. That, because God's not going to share His name with anybody except Himself. And Jesus manifested on the earth as an angel is God. He's worthy of worship. He can forgive sins. He can do miracles. And so that angel of the Lord that shows up all these times is actually Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, if that's the case, how does that change the way we read these stories? What do you think? Does it change it for you? Make you think anything else? Well, it really shows that the old, you know, people say the Old Testament doesn't apply to us now, but when Jesus said when He was on the earth... During his three three years, he said, "No one comes to the Father but by me." Mm-hmm. So that happened all the way through. It, and is it is it so cool of God? And, and we can't prove this is out of glory. It, it's just the way it's phrased. But I think one day we'll know when we stand before and we see it all revealed. But I think the one who created the first covenant. Who was that that called him out? It said, the angel of the Lord called unto Abram. It was Jesus. It was Jesus who said, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And I'm going to do all the work. All you've got to do is say yes. And then 2,000 years later, Jesus is born of a human and says the same thing. I'm going to create a covenant for you. I'm going to bless you and forgive you and give you an abundant life and eternal life. You don't have to do any of the work. I'm the one who's going to walk between the sacrifice. All you've got to do is say yes. It pulls the two together. And and when you begin to read some of these stories, you read the angel of the Lord coming to Moses and giving him confidence to go and face the Pharaoh. That's Jesus. 
Same Jesus that gives you confidence to stand up when you're discouraged and, and upset. The same Spirit that, that encourages Joshua when they're fighting and the angel of the Lord comes. That's Jesus. When Jacob's wrestling God, it says in the beginning of that story, he is wrestling the angel of the Lord, came to Jacob, and then he wrestled him. That was Jesus Christ. And it changes the way all of these stories really impact us because it makes, makes them so much bigger. What do you think? Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, the, the connection, and, and I think there are a lot of them. Uh, Moses had to have an entree when he, he went down to get the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, who do you say sent That's right. I am. I am. And then Jesus, of course, says, I am. I am. Yep. I'm I Continually. Am. All throughout the break. Yeah. So there's a pretty obvious connection. All throughout. I mean, and and... The thing that amazes me that when you read the Old Testament, you know, a lot of people will say, and I've taught this before, you know, you can't understand, if all you read is the New Testament, you miss the nature and character of God. You don't understand God's justice and His demand for how, how much He hates sin. But you also, throughout the Old Testament, begin to pick up a picture of something that really isn't manifested into the New Testament, and that's grace. What's Grace unmerited favor, giving something we don't deserve. From the very first time He called Abram out, that's grace. All those times that they're disobedient. I mean, David, a man after God's own heart, and he's disobedient to God. And God still blesses him, forgives him, and blesses him. That's grace. And so we begin to see this picture and nature of a God that is, yes, He's... He, hates sin and he is wrathful and he brings judgment. I mean, he tells them, go and wipe out all those people. People ask today, why in the world would he tell them when they go into the promised land to kill them all? He knows where we were going to end up today. The reason we're facing the problems in the Middle East we're facing today, and I'm not saying killing is the answer, but I'm saying, God, remember this area that from the time, remember who got this when Noah, three sons, remember who got this area? Ham. So Ham was the cursed. And what was the curse? I told you it was the immorality, the rebelliousness to God. And all these people were ungodly and rebellious. That's why when he said, you don't intermarry. Here later on, you're going to see he goes to look for a wife for his son. And he says, go to my people. Don't, I don't want one of these women because I don't want to begin to intermarry what was going to be the nation of Israel with these other people because that brings impurity in. And that's part of what circumcision was. But, I mean, it wasn't, God wasn't doing that saying, wipe these people out to be wrathful. They deserved it. Matter of fact, all of them deserved it. Anyone that didn't get wiped out, that was grace. Because they'd all been disobedient. But it was the beginning picture of how grace is extended in our life. And you say, I don't deserve it. No, you didn't. And no one in this book did anything to deserve it. Abram didn't deserve it. His descendants certainly didn't deserve it. And so that takes us to that. Genesis 18, 19 is the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. As I said before, we don't know where they are. We think that they were somewhere. Zoar, you could see Sodom and Gomorrah from Zoar. And so, because they flee, Lot and his family flees to Zoar in the story. Why does God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they're evil. You can say, well, you know, you've got these guys, that the angels that show up and visit Lot, and they're going to warn Lot. And you had these people banging on the door saying, hey, come out. And matter of fact, some translations say we want to have sex with them. It's not really an honest translation. The Bible 
It's one of those times in Hebrew where it says we want to know them, and it can mean we want to meet them, greet them, or we want to know them in the biblical sense. We want to be intimate with them. So there's really not a way to know. So people say, oh, well, their sins were homosexuality. Their sins were sins, and they were rampant. And God finally said, I've had enough. And then you have Abram going saying, don't destroy it for the sake of 50 righteous. If I find 50 righteous, will you not destroy it? God says, you find 50 righteous. It comes back and says, wait, if I find 45. He says, okay, you find 45. He finally gets him down to 10. And he probably should have said, if I find three, because there were three, because Lot and his kids and his wife. So, but he stayed on 10, and there wasn't 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he wipes them out. And he, he burns the whole thing. And Lot and his family are saved. Chapter 19, you see they flee to Zoar. And you have the famous story that you learned as a kid. What happened to Lot's wife? Turned to a pillar of salt. Why did she turn to a pillar of salt? Wrong. Wrong. Okay. I know it's a great story. Because he says, don't turn back. And he, you can go and read that in, in verse 17 of 19. And he says, as soon as they had brought them out, the angels said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, and you'll be swept away. Well, the word there for look back is the same translation that we have for go back. It wouldn't make sense that he just killed her because she looked back, because all the people in Zor, when they show up, say, we saw the fire last night. What was going on? And Abram comes to greet him, and he still can see the flames. And so if God was killing anybody that was looking at the flames, then he had to kill a whole lot of people in that valley. What God told him is, go, don't come back. And somewhere in that process, Lot's wife decided to go back. And if you've ever seen a flash fire come through and kill people quickly, it leaves behind pillars of ash that people look like people. You know, if, you, if you've seen the pictures of Hiroshima, when the atomic bombs were dropped in Nagasaki, where the atomic bombs were dropped, there were literally people that are, are cemented in place because it was such a flash fire and it burned so hot that it just it congealed their body to, to rot. Same thing you see in uh, Pompeii. If you go visit the ruins of Pompeii, volcano explodes, people are caught in this incredibly intense fire, and they're burned to where they're almost statues. And so there were probably a lot of pillars of salt in Sodom and Gomorrah when they came back that next day. And so I know it's a great story. It makes for cute things when you're vacation Bible school and you don't turn back, you know, and don't go. But it's the same principle that God gives us whether you turn back or go back. It's the idea of once I tell you to leave, leave. Once I tell you to get away from that, get away from it. Don't embrace it again. And it doesn't matter whether you look back or you go back. That's all disobedience. And she got what she deserved. Chapter 21, Isaac is born. Miraculously, Isaac is born. Uh, Abram is 100. Abram is is an old man. When Isaac is born, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, which a lot of people think is is horribly and mean. You can read about it in in, uh, chapter 21. But the idea of being sent away was, in the Old Testament, is a formal form of divorce, basically. It's a form of disinheritance. Hagar was his first son, and the only way he could disinherit him, not from being the covenant, but from his earthly goods, you know, all the people he had, his huge, you know, we know from the people he runs into when he runs into Abimelech back in 1920 that he's rich. He's like a king. And so he has all this stuff. Well, Ishmael is the one who's going to inherit it unless Abram does something. So he's, he's older than 13 because we know he got circumcised when he was 13. So Ishmael's probably 15, 16. 
And so Hagar and Ishmael are sent out, but it says the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I will take care of you and provides water for them. And they go out this way towards, towards the Negev. And so uh, it's not that bad. They take care of him and he is blessed. And we, and we do see, which a lot of people don't realize, that Ishmael shows up at Abram's funeral. When, Is, when Abram dies, it's Ishmael's family and Isaac's family that are there to bury him. So it's not a, uh, it's not a hard party is what I'm saying. It wasn't like they were kicked out. I mean, you watch it in movies. I think some movies that I've seen, it, you know, kind of like they're sent out into the desert on their own with, you know, a little bit of water. And you go out and pour, you know, and, and I think the Arab nations play that up. Aram was he, so mean to our, our descendant and all that, but that really wasn't the case. Then after he's born, you have Abram tested in the famous story in, in chapter 22. How's he tested? Tested to take his son out and... Lay him on an altar. Offer him as a sacrifice. Now, human sacrifice was not prevalent. No matter what people think of the, the ancient days, human sacrifice was, was almost rarely seen, even in Egypt, uh, even in some of the wilderness areas. So this is crazy to think that he's asking him to do that. But it, really, God's not really asking him to kill his son. He is testing him. He is seeing if he will be obedient, if he's going to worship God first. Now he tells him, to go, and, and historically it says he goes to Mount Moriah. And then we see Mount Moriah again in Second Chronicles when Solomon builds the temple. He builds the temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And if you've been to Jerusalem, when you go to the Temple Mount, they will say, this is Mount Moriah. Uh, we, don't, we don't know if it's the same place. We really don't because said he traveled, he's close to Hebron. He traveled two hours, two, hour, or two days, and, and they traveled about 20 miles a day. So that's 40 miles if you drew a circle around Hebron, 40 miles, you would get Jerusalem in the north and Kadesh Barnea in the south. And so it could be Jerusalem, but he also was told to take wood because there wasn't going to be wood at Mount Moriah. If you've been into Jerusalem, there's plenty, there, were plenty of, there was plenty of wood there. And then it doesn't say in Second Chronicles where it clearly could have said, we're building the temple at the same place where Abram offered his son as a sacrifice. Is it the same? Could be. Okay, and historically, the the Israelites, the Hebrews, if you go to Israel today, they will tell you the temple is built on Mount Moriah where Abram offered his son as a sacrifice. God provides a lamb. He doesn't need a sacrifice. As I said, it's just a type. Tradition holds that that's where it happened, in Jerusalem. And that's why Jerusalem grew because of the idea of Mount Moriah being a holy place. And then you have the deaths, and I listed it there. Sarah dies, she's 127 in Genesis chapter 23. She dies and is buried in Hebron. Abram actually gets married again and has more kids. He, yeah, he doesn't die till he's 175 in Genesis chapter 25. And he is buried together with, uh, with his wife in Hebron. Uh, they think traditionally that's where, where they are buried. And so, you know, it, it just it fits in. In the middle of that, Genesis 24 is where Abram finds his wife. If you'd like to read that story, I told you we can't cover all of them. It's where he sends his servant out. And it's a cool story how God provides because he, he basically tests God. He goes and I'm going to tell you the story, but you can go read the story. The camel shows up and, and thirsty and he says, I'm going to wait and not drink the camel until a pretty girl comes. And if it's the right girl that God's bringing, then she, there's going to be a sign. She's going to offer me water before she drinks. And Rebecca shows up, who ends up being Isaac's wife, and she offers him water. And so God says, this is the one. And she is the granddaughter of Abram's brother. 
So they are cousins, which it's hard not to marry your cousin when you all came from three people. So, I mean, somewhere in there, you're going to marry your cousin. And you can read all that. And Isaac's born, Isaac gets married, and then next week we'll pick up and go from Isaac and Jacob to him becoming Israel and then to Joseph and how the 12 tribes form. So any questions? Any questions about any of that? That was slow. I was slow tonight. I only had three pa- a page and a half. Like two weeks ago, I was, it was like I did four sessions in one. Any questions? Everybody understand? Like I said, I, from here on, there's a lot of stuff, and I'm just going to pick out certain things, kind of like I did with the covenant, kind of like I did with the idea of the angel of the Lord, so that you can get an overview. We're not going to follow all the way through the book of Genesis and Exodus and into Joshua and Judges. We're just going to kind of take a step back. But I want you to see some things that are kind of interesting and neat, but also have significance to the New Testament and significance to us. Because both of the things that we stopped at, covenant and the angel of the Lord being Jesus Christ, that's relevant to us today. From, from the very first part of Genesis, from the very first part of the story, that still matters. And you can go read back and follow it. I didn't read all those verses. So, uh, 